I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabel. And this is Romance. Podcast about romance novels. About, like, a lot of blood? Like, more blood than you would think. Maybe too much blood. About trees who watch your blood. (laughs) About fairy tales, but not the ones they purport to be. About sisters who love sisters. About the most complicated relationship in the world. (laughs) Betwixt two sisters. About boys who are wolves who become trees. About boys who get taller. He's so tall. About tattoos and what they mean. About cults. About the patriarchy. But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week, we are discussing kind of a romance novel. I don't know. I think we'll get into it. It is For the Wolf by Hannah Witten. A brilliant dark fantasy debut, says Jody Pilkett. An atmospheric, folkloric, half-familiar, if you ever wish Beauty and the Beast had more eldritch forest monsters and political machinations, this is the romance for you. Oh. Yeah, they just come right out and call it a romance, huh? They do, which is part of the reason why I picked it up and wanted to talk about it for spooky season. Because you and I had talked about having a little bit of romance fatigue, and I thought that this would be romance adjacent, especially since it was blurbed by Judy Pilcutt, who is not a romance writer. Who's Judy, Judy, Judy Pilcutt, for those who would like to know? She writes what I would call solidly women's fiction. She wrote My Sister's Keeper, which was turned into a movie with Cameron Diaz. She wrote this really intense book about teen suicide, um, she wrote a book about like this, the bluest note or something. I mean, she's written like 18 books. I, there's this wonderful Atlantic article called Fuck Judy Pilkett because she gets up at 4 a.m. every day and writes for three hours and then makes all of her kids sandwiches and then drives them to school and then like comes home and does like six loads of laundry and like presses her husband's shirts and then writes for another hour and then picks up her kids like, you know. Who's fact checking this? It was an interview that she did that the the Atlantic article used to make this summary about like what modern constructions of achieving it all looks like and used Jodi Pilcutt as like an example that's unachievable. Um, Yeah, like, I mean, I have the same lifestyle. That's crazy. Like, see, we can all just say that we're doing those things. (laughs) I don't get up at four o'clock in the morning. I do, listeners. I get up at four o'clock in the morning. I make sandwiches for other people's children. (laughs) You better believe it. I mean, I think it's still interesting that Judy Pilcutt, she feels closer to romance than she does to fantasy. Absolutely. No question there. So that's interesting. Um, Yeah, please read the back of the book. His eyes arc away from her to the waiting wilder wood beyond their ring of cleared ground. I warned you before, Red, none of the stories here have happy endings. Bum, bum, bum. (laughs) But that's all part of reading a romance. (laughs) As the only second daughter born in centuries, Red has one purpose to be sacrificed to the wolf in the wilder wood, in the hope he'll return the world's captured gods. Red is almost relieved to go, plagued by a dangerous power she can't control. She knows that, at least in the wilder wood, she can't hurt those she loves. Again. 
But the legends lie. The wolf is a man, not a monster. Her magic is a calling, not a curse. And if she doesn't learn how to use it, the monsters the gods have become will swallow the wilder wood and her whole world whole. No. <laughs> no. That, I mean, that's it. That's the back of the book. That's the back of the book. Yeah. All right, cool. So, yeah, I mean, like... It's interesting because even that like back of the book feels like a little bit different than than usual. Yes. I think it's because the back of the book is like allowing for more or, or even like creating more ambiguity than our usual fare here on Womance, the romance novel podcast. Yeah, it doesn't even give the name of the wolf, which is Eamon. Mm-hmm. Have you watched Bridget and Eamon, by the way? <laughs> I watched two episodes and was like, I'm so in love with this. And then I totally forgot that I was in love with it. Just reminding you it exists. Um, Thank you. I needed that. Yeah. Doesn't even give the wolf's name. Kind of like creates that ambiguity by being like, there are no happily ever afters in Mm -hmm. this forest. Not my forest. (laughs) So this book, you know, if you looked at the cover, you've got this illustration of um, Red Riding Hood, like this book purports to be a retelling of Little Red Riding Hood, but I think it's pretty clearly and like in a very direct, specific way, actually a retelling of Beauty and the Beast. Like there's even a magical mirror. Yes. To help our heroine see what's going on with her family. You know, before we get into like these larger, larger genre questions, I want to probe this question of like, why would you say it was a Little Red Riding Hood retelling rather than a Beauty and the Beast retelling? I think that's such a good question because when I picked up this book, my first thought was, oh, this will be sort of like that one 1970s song, Little Red Riding Hood, yeah, which is kind of a retelling of... Little Red Riding Hood, right? Where the wolf gets the voice and he isn't so bad after all and just wants to walk with Little Red Riding Hood for a ways to make sure that she gets home okay. That's how you interpret that song? (laughs) That's how I interpreted it the first time I heard it. I haven't heard it since then, so I imagine that it's... It's very... It's deeply lascivious. Okay. (laughs) It's a lecherous song. Great. And she's jailbait, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. All right, all right, all right, all right. (laughs) Haven't revisited it in a while. Anyway, I thought it would be like that, but like... Yeah. Well, I thought it would be like that, like lecherous. I thought it was going to be like the big furry wiener of From Into the Woods, the musical. Nice. I was like, wow, I bet this is going to be like super taboo. But it's not. No. It's not even taboo in the ways that Beauty and the Beast is taboo. No. In fact, it actually feels much more like Princess Mononoke because we find out that Eamon is functioning kind of as both a forest guardian and as like a forest appeaser because the forest is angry and self-serving, which is cool. I'm always for a forest with consciousness. Well, the forest is is neutral. That's important. It's right. neither good nor evil. Right. But it, it does it does want to continue to exist and does things that feel or are because of myth and centuries are rendered as evil, really just to survive. I think you might want to put that in your notebook to discuss with your therapist that you interpreted survival and not being self-subjugating as evil for a second. No, that's what the, that's how the book describes it. Like it, 
I mean, not to jump all the way ahead, but the forest drains the other second daughters. And we learn through the course of the book that it wasn't doing it because it wanted to kill the daughters. It was doing it because it needed to survive. Right, exactly. Like the forest isn't evil. No, but because of centuries of mythologizing the fact that the daughters ended up dead, the second daughters, people have like said that the woods are evil. Yeah, right. I think, but the the people who have said the wolves, the wolves, the woods are evil. Uh, well, they have said the wolf is evil, right? Like yeah. they don't think of it as sacrificing her to the forest. They think about it as sacrificing her to the wolf. Right. Like the wolf is making demands of them, not the forest. Right. But that's a misinterpretation on their part, not on the part of... Exactly. But you're t- you're describing, like, you're saying that, like, this perception of evil, like, you're saying it's not inborn in the forest, it's perceived by the people outside of the forest. But what I'm saying is they don't actually have that perception of the forest because they think it's the wolf that they're sacrificing. I mean, they have a second daughter conception so. of both the forest and the wolf. And, like, those things are intertwined in a way once we get into the woods that we learn isn't true. So the understanding of the people, Mm -hmm. from what I read, is that the forest works as a border. Right. And within that borderland is a wolf who somehow holds sway over the forest. Right. Which is partially true. And we find out later, but they think that like second daughter sacrifice as fuel to feed the engine that is the wolf. Right. And to keep the wolf happy so that he keeps the like forest, he keeps the gates closed to the shadow lands. And eventually they believe that the sacrifice of the second daughter will free the trapped Kings who have become gods over the course of the last thousand years even though they were originally human kings is that right i think they were understood as gods when they went into the forest oh i understood them like because solmir is human and he's one of the kings you mean solmir so you're saying he's human because he was betrothed to a human and because the first second daughter was also human You know, like, this is the thing with fucking fantasy novels. (laughs) People say high fantasy. Like, I can't imagine reading a high fantasy book and, like, not sitting there with, like, a pencil and taking notes. It's, like, detail that blurs the edges. I think that's right. Because, like, so in in the front face matter, we have this, like, old prophecy. And it's written by Tiernan Neria. Andrelane, who we never meet, who we never meet, of House Andrelane, the first daughter, <laughs> which we never hear about, of Valley Day, Valley Da, Year of the Binding, because she's the first daughter. It was her sister who went and married the first original wolf, right? So no, I I, I think the kings were originally. Well, what's that? What human. does that say that makes you think that they were originally human? Because she, the second daughter, was originally human. She was betrothed and broke her engagement to Solomir, who was human. And then the other kings of the other kingdoms came to make the deal with the Wilderwood and then got caught in the Shadowlands. I mean, none of this really matters for the story itself. Like, this is all just like world building that, like, functions as 
I don't know, like half-baked boiled egg plot. Here's the thing. Like, there's nothing super specific in this preamble that would make you think that, like, the kings were gods when they went into the forest or the kings were human when they went into the forest, right? And, like, there's nothing really definitive that comes up throughout the rest of the book. And, right, and that's what I mean by, like, you can kind of, like, read into it whatever you read into it, right, to get out of it whatever you want to get out of it. But it's – I don't think the average person picking up this book – will ever have this conversation <laughs> and it will never matter how you interpreted the state of the kings. I also feel like a, a medieval monk, like was Jesus born a grown man? Like, <laughs> like we're asking, yeah, we're a hundred percent like asking the wrong question, but that's the thing about like, did I just call the Bible a fantasy novel? Whoa, edgy. Welcome to the edgy podcast. Womance. But, like, you know what I mean? Like, it's this particular way of world building that I think is really prevalent in the genres of maybe just fantasy. I don't know about sci-fi, but it's definitely prevalent in the genre of fantasy where you provide all of this detail that it's not really doing anything but kind of adding shading to the painting. And it's not actually giving you any kind of additional clarity, just like the perception that you're experiencing clarity in the text. Like the idea that you can grasp what's going on. But the two of us have two completely different but equally legitimate interpretations (laughs) of what happened in this book. And I don't actually think like right or wrong is like the correct way to like understand this. But... It doesn't really matter who has a stronger grasp because it's like a grasp on something that doesn't matter. It's like a grasp on vapor. Right. Like the book doesn't care about whether or not the kings were at their inception mortal or divine because that's not the thrust of the story. But is that a failure on the part of this book's like fantasy part? I mean, I, I would say it is. Uh Uh-huh. Because like, and I've thought a lot about this question as we were preparing to have this discussion, because as you and I have said multiple times, the thing that makes romance specific isn't necessarily the HEA come at me. Right, right. It is the central relationship as the driving force of the plot. And I think that there is ample evidence in this text that the Mm -hmm. central relationship is what is driving the plot. Like she makes... Red, Radaris, our titular little Red Riding Hood, who's really much more of a beauty, uh, is making decisions in reaction to Eamon, our titular male main character hero figure. Right, the wolf. So I think you're exactly right. Like, I think the rules we can lay out for you, and I don't know why we might bother later on, but like, they all relate, like the rules, the specific rules of the universe relate directly to, I want to say Bridget and Eamon, but it's not. It's Red and Eamon. It's Red and Eamon. <laughs> it relates directly to them and how their relationship works and how it can work. And guess what? The solution to all of their problems, basically marriage, like true marriage, in that they have to... 
It's also like a Hegelian confrontation, like marriage (laughs) as Hegelian confrontation, which I think is really true. Like you're forced to like sacrifice your own autonomy for the sake of the other person's autonomy, but you have to do it to each other. (laughs) I love that you went Hegelian argument because my read of that, like, (laughs) my read of that was like oh it's a marriage of convenience when he when Eamon first approaches Red right so we've got this Mm -hmm. whole second daughter myth yes yes, she shows up in the woods finds out that the wolf isn't actually a beast it's a man who she encounters in a castle that's falling apart and is being consumed by the forest right And and has unfortunately just one bed has just one bed and he's in the library at one point And he's, you know, like a cranky, grouchy, super handsome man who looks like he's under 30, which makes him age appropriate for our 20-year-old heroine. Um, And we find that Eamon is in true distress. The Wilder Wood is dying slash in trouble. And the way that he has to fix it is either by cutting himself or by using magic. And every time he uses magic, he becomes less human. He becomes much more the Wilder Wood. So very early on in the book, in this Hegelian confrontation, as Morgan would term it, as marriage of convenience trope, I would term it, he approaches her in her bedroom and is like, well, we could get hand-fasted, and that might help. Beep, beep, beep. Um, I mean, the final act marriage (laughs) is a Hegelian confrontation. No, I don't think their marriage of convenience is a Hegelian confrontation. (laughs) They start with a marriage of convenience, y'all, and it becomes the real thing, which is always I mean, a Hegelian confrontation. Like, all of the ways this book succeeds at being a romance, the relationship is central, and the relationship is built into, like, the fantasy mythos yes. of the story. There's lots of tingles. There's fade to blacks. There's just one bed. There's like a cranky hero and his weird friends that love him despite him being a cranky puss. Yeah, that tell us that he's a good person. There's also like two or three ancillary relationships that will definitely go on to have their own books. I can point to all the places that it's a romance. But I think the way this book is marketed, the way this book is presented, it leans much more on the fantasy aspect. And so- You read more fantasy than I do. Yes. I have, I've only read the, I mean, nothing slaps like the hits, but I've only read like The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, I guess Harry, does Harry Potter count? Technically. I guess Harry, I guess Harry Potter. Yes, I have read much more fantasy than you. Yeah, so I want to ask you, like, what are the contours? What are the specifics? What are the rules of fantasy? If we're going to interrogate this text as, like, a crossover, I think we got to at least set the table of, like, what is a fantasy novel? A fantasy novel takes place in a different world with its own rules, so it requires Game quite... of Thrones. I've also read Game of Thrones. You've read all of them? Not all of them. I read the first three. Okay, me too. I definitely jumped out after the Red Wedding. <laughs> Anyway, uh, like, go go ahead. Just a note on that. It's like sometimes you're like, and I had this feeling with Quentin Tarantino Mm -hmm. when I was watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And I think I had this feeling when I read The Red Wedding when I was like, I think you're enjoying the parts of this that should be uh, bad. Yep. (laughs) And I think we're very different people. And I think we should start seeing other 
books, you and I. Yeah. A thousand percent agree. That is exactly <laughs> how I felt about that. I was like, oh, this is gratuitous and titillating to not me, but someone <laughs> else. It's weird whenever like you realize the the author, if you can make these assumptions, but there's something about that that like that greasy feeling, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like there's something where like the person who created this was titillated. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, good fantasy or I should say strong fantasy, strong, well-structured fantasy doesn't require a ton of world building because it does a lot of really good, um, exposition at the beginning and it uses character dialogue to push you into spaces to know stuff. It introduces you to the characters. What's a platonic ideal fantasy? How would you know you were reading a fantasy and not a sci-fi that's the technology. The technology is what separates it from sci-fi, right? So it's like swords and bows and arrows. And the thing that separates it from romance is that the central mover doesn't have to be a relationship. Often it's not. It's like a political thing. Okay. That's really, that's, so it's a, the central relationship tends to be some kind of like political. Like a hero's journey. Like somebody has to like reclaim a throne. Somebody has to like bring justice to the realm. Somebody has to like find their kid, stuff like that. I think like what this discussion about fantasy is showing me is how uh, very idiosyncratic romances amongst genre fiction. Yes. If you were like, what makes a horror novel, which is my other genre tipple of choice, like I would be like, a hero's journey. And if you asked me like, what makes a sci-fi? I would be like, a hero's journey. (laughs) 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 Or I might be like, a building's romance, right? And Mm -hmm. like, I think romance is kind of like easy to fit into these other, it's easy to have crossovers with like romance because romance is about structure rather than aesthetics. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of what we talk about with like horror, what we talk about with fantasy, what we talk about with sci-fi comes down to aesthetics. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we have that, we've had discussions about like, what makes something speculative fiction rather than sci-fi. Yep. But that's, and that kind of gets more into like sci-fi having its own. But like also if you're only compared to like one other kind of fiction, (laughs) are you really that idiosyncratic? I think that's really interesting because to me, if you ask me what a fantasy was, I might try to say something like a hero's journey, but I would also be like dragons, swords, magic is real, uh, mountains, forests, you know, like it's got a look. I think that's exactly right. And I think it's right to say it's idiosyncratic because like honest to goodness, like fantasy, sci-fi, horror, which I've read precious little of, really does fall into Hero's Journey, Buildings Roman, and like I can't think of the other literary cycle it would fall into. And the fact that it's not that it's so singularly concerned with one individual and romance is much more concerned with two individuals coming Mm -hmm. together Mm -hmm. is really intense. Yeah. Well, and I think about like the other side, right? Like other ways that we could describe plot lines might be like man versus machine, man Mm -hmm. versus nature. That doesn't really exist in romance. Nope. Um, I mean, it can, but it's always like, 
a side hustle, you know? Mm-hmm. So if, like, fantasy is an aesthetics, then I think, like, this book succeeds. Sure. There are, there are fantasy monsters. There's a mysterious forest that's always twilight. Um, there's a decrepit castle in stone, and people are wearing gowns, and embro- embroidery is really big. <laughs> and I've heard, like, something really reductive that, like, sci-fi is man versus machine. Not true. And uh, fantasy is man versus nature. Not true. Not necessarily true. But, like, this definitely falls into the latter, right? More so than the former. If there's going to be some kind of, like, conflict, it's with, like, our nature, right? Mm-hmm. But also faith and all sorts of other things. But I want to go back because your initial feeling as a regular reader of fantasy is that this book kind of fails at fantasy. And so that tells me that there is something else in fantasy that I don't think exists in romance and maybe isn't necessarily like central to being a fantasy novel, but is central to being a good fantasy novel. Honestly, it's the big bad, right? And like having a central antagonist where where this book fails as fantasy and succeeds as romance, the obstacles do not center on a particular character or even like mm. a set of circumstances like where this feels like a romance and not a fantasy is that there's like you're running uphill and you're encountering obst- you're encountering multiple obstacles but those obstacles stand not really against our a uh, female main character, Red, they stand in the way of her happiness with Eamon. And one of those particular obstacles is that Eamon doesn't want the forest to get Red, even though that would help him. Mm-hmm. So he's functioning as this kind of, I'm not going to teach you how to gamble, is like a version in a romance that I've read, because like then you'll be part of this den of iniquity and you'll be down right, here in the right. mud with me. And so right. like that thing feels very much like romance and not like fantasy necessarily. But yeah. also the fact that like it ha- this book had weird interstitials where we Ugh, check in yeah. with the sister. Yeah, I skipped half of them, too. And I understood that as the part that was feeding into the fantasy genre where it's like this is the big bad it's this priestess who's like perverted the religion but we didn't know enough about the religion or how it was functioning to understand her as anything less than like you know she's actually the only correct one in that like (laughs) she gets her religion to actually do something (laughs) do the thing that she like everyone says that she wants it to do and the the fact that kiri is so so one-dimensional and so predictable as a baddie Mm -hmm. makes it feel like shitty fantasy. Well, there's also, like, the fact that I think is very romance, this Sebastian St. Vincent problem of, like, evil has to be ambiguous. (laughs) Like, it has to be, it has to, like, look forlornly at you while it stabs you, right? (laughs) And we have to describe how forlornly it looks because, like, One of our obstacles, right? We've already talked about the forest, which is, like, actually, like, this neutral force, right? With a consciousness. With a consciousness, but, like, overall neutral. Right. Um, It's just interested in, you know, survival and, um, like, forest management. (laughs) But, like, we also meet one of these, like, dreaded, well, beloved, dreaded kings, Mm -hmm. Solmir, 
And he has, like, fallen in love with our heroines. It's not object- It's not specifically stated. But, like, he has some kind of deep affection for our heroine's sister. Mm-hmm. And so even though he's, like, possessed our heroine's former lovers, it's complicated. It's fantasy. Uh, the details would only blur the edges of my argument. But, like, he wants, like the easiest way forward for everyone, mm-hmm. even though, he, and like, there's something about that that doesn't feel like pat evil, but feels like a romance novel setting up a tortured romantic hero for the next book. Absolutely. I think you're so right to say that. Um, it doesn't feel like pat evil, even though we understand it in the text to be like the kind of e- evil that functions by omission or like, like, yeah. um, like says yes to the bully like he read very much to me like neville chamberlain appeasement of hitler like that's like the easiest thing that i have where he's like just let the kings come back everything like it's gonna suck but like it's gonna suck either way so like take it on the chin now and it'll hurt less yeah there's something about like it's not that he's making the wrong choice but in romance, there is a right choice. And right. he's just not making that one. <laughs> yes, absolutely. A thousand percent. And so, like, even that felt, as as a fantasy, like, that felt, like, sort of trite. But as romance, I recognize it. And I recognize how it's functioning because, like, he'll be the next guy in the book. So he can't be too bad because that means his redemptive arc is going to have to do way too much work and jump the shark. You know, I would say, like, if I were to be, like, as, as like, a, a for sure a fantasy neophyte, I would be like, if someone were like, how can you tell if a fantasy didn't do its job? I would be like, oh, you can poke lots of holes in the mythology. I think that, like, fable and mythos are, like, really important in fantasy, right? Yes. In that way, I also feel like this was pretty successful. I wasn't able to pick. I mean, look, I sat down to read this as a romance novel. So I'm and I sat down to read this for my own pleasure and enjoyment. So I didn't like try to poke holes. And and it didn't do anything to super offend me, which would cause me to poke holes. But I think overall, it seems like the mythology, even though it's like, you know, it's just enough detail to blur the edges. As I keep saying obnoxiously, it does just enough to keep the ship tight. I think it does just enough to keep the ship sailing. I don't know that we're going to call it tight. <laughs> what did you, were there any egregious plot holes for you or in the, in the religiousness you have to, I'm talking about the mythology. I think the fact that it relies so heavily on this, like there's like this interplay between actual temporal time and then mythos time, right? Because mm. Amon our hero is centuries old because time Mm. moves differently in the Wilderwood. And then we find out that there's this pocket in the north of people, human people, who've been living on the edge of the forest, but the forest won't let them leave. And so then I had a question. I'm like, well, are they also then mostly immortal because of how time works in the Wilderwood and they're surrounded by it? But like that wasn't made clear. And then there's this whole other thing about like how the Wilderwood landlocked the country that red comes from with this fog, yeah. but like that doesn't like that doesn't really go anywhere. And then, <laughs> so like I have like, I, I have a lot of questions. So uh, like if you're listening to Isabeau talk and you're like biggest plot point plot hole of all, where's the grandma? Where's the grandma? You would be correct because this book, while it very much seems to like 
it not only seems to more market itself, like it's very strange. Like I enjoyed the text. I enjoyed reading it. I liked it a lot. But like there's the the text sold itself as both fantasy and a red riding hood retelling, right? Yes. Marketed itself as such. And it is very little, it's it's much less of either of those things than it is of romance versus a Beauty and the Beast retelling. Is there something embarrassing about Beauty and the Beast that isn't embarrassing about Red Riding Hood? Or maybe not like embarrassing, but like what makes Little Red Riding Hood a more interesting sell than Beauty and the Beast? I don't think it's about interest. Like, I think this is truly about money. Like, I think it's like, there's so many Beauty and the Beast retellings, but what if we did Little Red Riding Hood? But what if we, like, yeah. I mean, like, okay, she she wears a red r- riding hood into the mm-hmm. forest, a ceremonial red riding hood. Red for sacrifice. Um, and he is called the wolf for undisclosed reasons. I guess, like, they say something about, like, a translation of a old language or something. Mm-hmm. Details of the the edges. But um, <laughs> they call him the wolf, but his name isn't even wolf. It's like Amon. Which, like, why wouldn't you just say his name is wolf? <laughs> so, yeah, you think it's like just like market saturation? Honestly, yeah, because like there's nothing about this other than her red hood that makes this little red riding hood. There's no grandma. There's no walk to grandma's place like her flight to the castle is just like bells to the beast's castle there's like nothing about the wilder wood that isn't like the enchanted forest that surrounds the beast castle like it's a beauty and the beast retelling yeah um you know i capitalism like god there's (laughs) nothing it won't do like there's no it's like acid, right? It eats at everything. But little <laughs> did I ever imagine that capitalism would lead to like, <laughs> we need this book to sell. So we're going to make this romance uh, akin to a pedophilia parable <laughs> rather than Beauty and the Beast, a parable about getting to know people for their insides. Fuck, man. God, that's depressing. I just want to have, like, a moment to ignore. Like, if that's the case, how fucking dark that we're like, um, it's more interesting for us to sell a story um, that relates our hero to a carnivorous... Pedophile. Out-to-eat little girls, right? And their grandmothers. And grandmas. Right? But they're eating the grandmother to get to the little girl. As opposed to the story of a man with too much body hair uh, and full of rage and loneliness and traps a woman. Like, to be honest, like, this feels like choosing between two evils, but Beauty and the Beast is significantly less evil. Yes. Like, if I could assign uh, abolish prisons, but if I could assign prison... (laughs) prison imprisonment to the beast and the wolf the wolf is for sure getting a longer sentence than the beast oh yeah because like the wolf actually consumes people the beast just lives in his house well he does like hold her hostage basically Mm. but she is an adult woman and she consents to that because she frees her father yeah she's an adult woman 
coerced. <laughs> but she's not eaten. That's true. She's not eaten. And, and she's not, he never threatens to eat her. Right. Anyway, I think that's like, yes, capitalism sucks. But here's what I will say about the way that the Red Hood functions in this text, which I did love. Um, Her sister gives it to her, so it's really special to her because it's like the last thing that her sister puts on her when she goes into this sacrifice of the woods. And so she keeps it even though it's tattered and torn and looks like shit. And then like he goes to this weird village lost in time and has someone fix it and it's like i thought that was a nice gift very thoughtful and he gets it embroidered which is like and he a gets it embroidered. To a, like, wedding tradition which i absolutely loved and he's like even if we're not really married you deserve a bridal cloak and she's like we could be really married because of, like she's the one who's trying to like initiate their physical relationship uh, which I guess is a nice way of like trying to fix the problems of Little Red Riding Hood. I don't know. It's like it's Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> yeah, like, it's like I don't know why we're pretending like it's anything else because it's not. I do worry um, about. I'm going back to the fact that you think that song from the '60s is about like the wolf actually being a pretty good guy. I'm just gonna walk with you for a ways. <laughs> He's lying. He's obviously lying. Uh, maybe what anyway i haven't listened to it in a long time i'm gonna listen to it tonight and i'm sure i'll text you and be like oh my god i can't believe it blah 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 anyway one of the things that i thought was really good about this and why it reminded me of princess mononoke by uh hayazo miyazaki is that you said earlier that fantasy is an aesthetic and this book has a real aesthetic. Like we've got the embroidered cloak, we've got the moss everywhere, we've got the twilight, we've got the way that the wolf is constantly being consumed by green. And I thought all of that was really, really compelling. And one of the refrains that I found most compelling in this text was this idea that the first daughter is for the throne. Cool. We've got women in power, although that sucks in this book. The second daughter is for the wolf. And the wolves are for the wilder wood. And like that's sort of this prophetic prophecy that undergirds the fantasy part of it. But it also happens to then undergird the romance because at one point he's like, I want you to let you have to choose. You have like, you know, choose the wood, choose me. And she's like, I'm for the wolf, and the wolf is for the wilder wood. And I thought that was a really nice callback. And one of the things that married the fantasy and the romance really nicely and organically. Yeah. So the Wilderwood, she points out to the Wilderwood and the Wilderwood's like, oh my God, you're right. Um, (laughs) That his parents uh, chose to bind themselves to the Wilderwood and he never got to make that choice and she never got to make that choice. And so the choice itself, making that choice is what creates, like fixes everything, right? creates the right power balance, replenishes mm-hmm. the wood. Like, I will, I choose to sacrifice myself for you, right? Which is very Beauty and mm-hmm. the Beast. and Very Beauty and the Beast. And she eventually decides, she so she goes from, like, I am for the wolf and the wolf is for the Wilderwood to I am for the Wilderwood because I am for the wolf, right? So yes. she chooses the, wil- the Wilderwood itself. And she also says it feels like home, right? Like, this yeah. larger thing. And they're inextricable until they literally become inextricable. And then right. she's able to do it all over. So he becomes like a, a wood, a 
He becomes the woods. He becomes the forest god, the guardian of the forest, which is also very Princess Mononoke. Yeah, I love Princess. It's my favorite. Studio Ghibli. It is also my favorite. I think this book, like, yeah, like, here's the thing. Like, this book is so good, and it bums me out how it's been marketed, which happens to me a lot in this genre. (laughs) But what was, you're kind of getting at the, like, romance part. Let's talk about our sexiest parts. (laughs) It's so funny that like this is a hundred percent like the structure of our show, and every time you ask, I'm always like, oh, <laughs> I didn't think, I don't know what I'm gonna do. What, what part? Oh. Se- sexy. <laughs> sexy. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> it's so funny. Um, I thought this book because it is so aesthetic. Like I loved, as we've already talked about, the gift of the cloak and the bridal cloak. I also Mm. loved the tropiness of the, like, we could get hand-fasted, then we wouldn't really have to get married. It's not Um, called hand-fasted. They call it a binding, and they both use their hair, so it's not a ribbon. Um, And I thought that was really sexy, but the sexiest part... Hand-fasted, by the way, is like a DIY marriage. Yes. Which is also what they do because it doesn't require a witness or anyone else. Anyway, my sexiest part is when they're in the tower and he's like trying to teach her how to practice her magic. And then like they get really close and then like they start making out and then like he like has to pull away and like the forest has like almost consumed the entirety of the tower and he's like I can't make out with you because I can't have the attention span to like stop the forest from getting you if we make out so our our hero he hasn't been in love with the previous second daughters but he has tried to save them by using his magic to repel the forest and also to appease the forest with his own blood Mm -hmm. um and magic to keep them away from the second daughters. And he's been most successful, of course, in our most recent round with Red. Mm-hmm. But whenever he becomes romantically engaged, like intimately, physically engaged with Red, he becomes distracted and it allows the forest to kind of pull in and, uh, you know, his like protection spell starts to fade away from Red. So there is a scene in the novel, Isabeau, wherein... Red wakes up and she hears a tapping on her door mm-hmm. and she looks outside and the hallway is full of trees mm-hmm. and the trees have come to consume her and they like mm-hmm. ch- the trees chase her in their magical way all the way to his bedroom. Do you think it was because he was jacking off? Do you think he was masturbating or thinking about? Yeah, absolutely. He's like been alone for a really long time. This isn't canon, but I think he was I think he was masturbating and that's what that's happened. Fair. Okay. And I love that. Sexiest part uh, is my <laughs> ma- is my headcanon of him masturbating alone in his tower. That's a good one. Thank you. I had to create it for myself because this book only has fade to black sex scenes. It's true. There's this weird line where like the roots of the wilder wood are entangled like the wolves on the floor. And you're supposed to understand that that's Eamon and Red having sex. And I was like, I'm just picturing roots. Yeah. Or wolves fucking, and I don't like either oh, of God. those things. <laughs> it's very fade to black. This is a sweet romance. It's not steamy. It's not steamy. I mean, like, it's it's definitely got the tingles. Like, yep. since you took the sexiest part, I will say I like the part 
where they're walking in the woods together and then they kind of sort of start holding hands. Yeah. I really like that part. There's like very much this like autumnal coziness. And I think it's interesting that once the Wilderwood like reaches its full power, once our hair, like in our brief respite of happiness in the text, it becomes autumn rather than like spring. I think that's also really really interesting because we associate autumn with like a closing of something or like a giving up of something and in this text it's it's like it's full beauty is only happens in autumn it's so interesting like so I'm thinking about like how red has like donned her red hood and she mm-hmm. like loves it and part of that is that she's like reclaiming ownership of her status as like mere sacrifice Mm-hmm. And I think there's something about like how spring, like these transitional seasons have always been associated or like the spring specifically has been associated with femininity, right? Like mm-hmm. rebirth and, and it has everything to do with pregnancy and birth. But mm-hmm. like recently we have like there's something so like the autumnal feminine is very much like not just because you and I are currently transitioning into fall and our <laughs> listenership is currently transitioning into fall. But, like, there's something about autumn and femininity that go hand in hand. And it feels like a reclamation, right? Mm. Like, in a lot of ways, if you think about it. Pumpkin spice lattes. Mm -hmm. You know, flannel has this sort of, like, softness that is, Mm -hmm. like, a desirable femininity in men or, like, a desirable masculinity in in women. Mm -hmm. You know, like, coziness indoorness and it's interesting that this season of like shedding right of like death of like decay right the veil Mm -hmm. becoming thinner is now also associated with femininity Mm -hmm. and I wonder like what like what do I actually love about fall there's so much in fall of the like licking the sore tooth of femininity like Halloween, for example, is a time, and maybe this is just America specific, but like has always been, has always loomed large in my life. Yep. And it's a time when like you can be scared, but in this very like cloistered way, Mm -hmm. like the edges are clear of your fear when you're watching a horror movie or going to a haunted house, right? As -hmm. opposed to like the constant looming fear. I think it's nice to have fear boxed up for you rather than like, okay, I'm leaving my house okay, I'm in my house. I think that's something that's nice about it. And I think there's also something in like dressing up for Halloween. You get this acceptable form of self-expression that's outside of, that is not just like outside of the norm, but can be like more sexual. It can be less mm-hmm. sexual. Like mm-hmm. I think a lot of how women think of themselves or how feminine people think of themselves is put on full display on Halloween, like whether you're witty, whether you're uh, funny, whether you're, you have niche cultural references, um, or you're very sexy, or you're, you know, you like craftsmanship, right? Those are expressed and appreciated fully on Halloween. And there's also something of like, I think, indoorsiness. (laughs) I think what you're describing is almost like a totality, right? Or like the full spectrum of womanhood gets to be expressed and potentially even celebrated in the fall, right? Like as you've just described, you get to be witty and funny and less sexual or more sexual. You get to have fear on your terms. You get to be into pumpkin spice. You get to be into being crafty. And like with the harvest specifically, you get to be like autumn, like 
goddess of harvest and fertility and like right. you know like the full expression of womanhood because you also then have made maiden crone yeah functions in the especially the way that americans have an autumnal femininity and i think part of what's so fucking enjoyable is like each part of it is celebrated in its own niche mm-hmm. and each part of it is like you can participate or not right like yeah fall femininity is definitely opt-in yeah and i don't know that many other versions of especially american or western femininity function as opt-in as fall does that's interesting the opt-in and like opt-in in the way that you choose to exactly like you get to express your autumnal femininity how you want to because there are so many versions of it yeah like you just said like there's the outdoor apple picking flannel version there's the indoor cozy candle like crafting version there's the you know halloween party super awesome costume or there's you know like the little you know eyeliner on your nose to make a kitty like yeah there's every version of that is acceptable yeah And even, like, if you think about, you know, feast holidays, like Thanksgiving, right? The idea of being a host Mm -hmm. as a woman is is not problematized by whatever you're doing the rest of the year. Yeah. Like, people aren't like, oh, wow, you're only, you only cook the Thanksgiving dinner. You know what I mean? That's such a good point. I I hadn't even thought past like Halloween, but you're right. Like Thanksgiving does feel like a really low stakes feminine holiday in that way. Yeah. I mean, it's high stakes, like, and it's still as performative and, you know, it's more family oriented than Halloween, which adds a little bit more stress, a lot more stress. Mm -hmm. I think Thanksgiving is, and like, I think feast holidays that don't exist anywhere else in our country. So I don't know how else to talk about them, but like a, like a feast holiday kind of like hinges on like a feminine energy being present, right. Within a a communal situation. Yes. All of this is to say that made the handholding sexier, the fallness of it. (laughs) No, I a hundred percent. And I am so glad that you said like a feminine energy that is constitutive of a community. And like, cause that's a thousand percent how this book functions. Yeah. And it feels like a a femininity uh, for yourself because like you said, it's opt in. Whereas like springtime is like, Oh, are you going to wear your sundress? Yeah. I'm going to, Look at you with your shoulders out. Yeah. Yeah. When I dress for the first time in my fall clothes, I don't think, oh, God, when's the first cat call going to come? But I do feel that way in the springtime. <laughs> or in the springtime when people are like, get ready for your beach bod. I'm like. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I just got out of a meat locker for four months. Can we just like not with those articles, please? <laughs> All right. So what's your weirdest part? So glad you asked. (laughs) So my weirdest part centers around a sort of like word bubble Mm. that has to do with knife and cutting and bleed. Yes. Uh, uh, Yeah. Yeah. Why was it like sap? Why was it like sap? I want to start with the, the epitaph of the text and who it's quote unquote dedicated to. To those who hold anger too deep to extricate, to those who feel too knife-edged to hold something soft, 
to those who are tired of holding up worlds. And literally, listeners, <laughs> like you can't go two pages without something, somebody saying something cutting or having an emotion that made you bleed or that cut too close to the bone or then literal actual cutting all the time. Like this book, I think, actually deserves a trigger warning because multiple characters are constantly cutting for various reasons. And it's seen as the only thing to do. And especially since this book is being marketed as potentially YA, this one was not in the YA shelf when I picked it up, but like I've seen it on YA shelves. The fact that there is so much physical cutting of wrists, of arms, of legs, hands, hands, like that. That doesn't feel safe or good and functioned as one of my weirdest parts. Uh, like, where is this? Because it it's necessary in the text. And so because it is necessary, it's seen as noble. But I never want cutting as a release to be seen as noble because that is not a safe or healthy way to deal with problems. Yeah. But also the text is obsessed with it. Yeah, like that's the thing. Like I would say my weirdest part is that this text has something really clear to say about martyrdom, which is that it's not so cool, right? Like you can share your life. You can share your burden with others, right? Come on, guys. Let's unionize. Yeah. Anyone who knows someone with a martyr complex can relate to like, fuck, it sucks. Like, whatever the martyr thinks is happening in their head is not happening in reality, right? People aren't like, oh, thank God you're doing this. I'm so glad you're doing this, right? Yeah. But (laughs) the book is also very, like, can't help but to feel like Eamon is a very good man for it. And we can know he's a very good man because of it. As opposed to, like, actually problematizing fully problematizing the behavior. Yeah, like all of his like little friends, they're like self-sacrificing bastard, self-sacrificing asshole, but all of it's said with like the incredulity of love. So you're absolutely right. It's never problematized truly in the text. Like they like, they don't even call it out. They just remark upon it. Mm -hmm. And like the blood stuff is kind of like, it's kind of icky to me. It's icky to me. I don't know. Like, here's the thing. I'm like, is, wow, this book isn't taboo. But what if this book is like blood play and I just don't even realize it? <laughs> that could be. That's it's, There's a lot of it. And like blood is the thing that the forest feeds on. It's also what lets the like bad guys go. It's also like how they kill the queen. Like blood is blood play and blood sacrifice are like constitutive of this fantasy world building. I understand it's constitutive of the world building. <laughs> I'm considering the fact that it might actually be, like, sexy building for some people. Mm-hmm. Blood play worries me, though, to be frank. I, it's like, <laughs> when all this stuff with Army Hammer came out mm. about him having a cannibalism fetish. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, People were like, oh, don't kink shame. And it's like, but but this has, like, there have been, like, multiple, like, actual consensual murders mm-hmm. in this particular fetish community. And, like, there have also been unconsensual murders. And also, like, the idea of consensual murder. Like, what am I talking about? But also but, like, with the Army Hammer stuff in particular, like, those women did not consent and felt coerced. Yeah, exactly. And, like, the, uh, uh, anyways, I just... 
as ever, I do want people to cons- to think deeply <laughs> about this before they're like, it's my bag, you know, like, <laughs> and so maybe that's what it is. And maybe we're just too fucking square, Isabeau. Could be. Maybe our maybe we were like, oh, this is such a like sweet romance. And we're like, oh no, like it's the forest for the trees. <laughs> hey. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I'm just in- enjoying the totality of my autumnal femininity here. Okay. <laughs> in general, I tend to understand like a martyr complex or martyr martyr idolization as being like inherently patriarchal, right? Because it's like putting like a burden onto a single person or a perception of burden onto a single person. And martyrdom usually requires a very particular kind of sacrifice, be it blood or marrow or like, you know, as you said in, earlier in the episode, like the subnegation of self. Yeah. And like, to be honest, like, is blood that different from time? Like, it's both your lifespan. That's. And your ability to live. Really good. And uh, yeah. And so people who fucking work super late for no reason. Yeah. That's really good. A th- a thank you. <laughs> Do you have any other thoughts about For the Wolf by Hannah Witten? So I want to say that, like, I also very much enjoyed it. It took me a while to get into it. I think the first 100 pages kind of functioned uh, a little bit more of a slog for me. But, like, once it caught up with itself, I was excited to read it. I had a really good time. But one thing that was also, like, my other weirdest part, other than the cutting, that was mm. niggling in the back of my head. Uh-oh. Was this idea that the feminism of this text was assumed because red Adaris is like fighting against her sacrifice oh, in like, yeah. these particular ways and like blah 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 um and I didn't have a way like I didn't know what to call it other than obvious feminism and like cards on the table Morgan beautifully said it's Whedon feminism <laughs> And it's the feminism that Joss Whedon ascribed, especially in Buffy, but also in Firefly, where you have this, like, sassy, cranky girl who meets this, like, grumpy guy. And, like, he supports her, but he's also a martyr and, like, kind of a little bit bumbling, but also really sweet. And she's, like, for the woods and she's super strong, but she's got a heart of gold and, like, this other weird complex. And it's, like... I know that I should be cheering because that's what the text wants me to do. But it also is just like, there are some problems here, guys. And like, why does Eamon the wolf have to bleed himself dry? Why does the, why does Red have to be consumed entirely? And her sister, who's trying to rescue her as a corollary and will be the functionary of the second book like why does she literally have to die and like be in a glass coffin in the shadowlands like is this feminism (laughs) like it it also is like red's like heroism relates directly to like the fact like throughout the book as she becomes more and more self-assured she starts like wearing pants yes and men's shirts amen's shirts Eamon's shirts, yeah. And, like, the final, like, true marriage act, right, which I mm-hmm. described as a Hegelian confrontation, is exactly that. Like, it's a Hegelian confrontation. It's, like, 
And I think that's one of the bugaboos of romance is like, what is a marriage? Mm -hmm. Is our understanding of marriage as it exists, as we hold it in our minds for the purposes of an HEA? Because even when you get like a happily for now, are you really getting a happily for now? Like, are you thinking about it that way? Are you like, these two (laughs) kids might go off and have sex with other people later on? Like... No, like the idea is like once this new set of genital, this other set of genitals for the rest of my life. Yep. And uh, who does that benefit? <laughs> who does one set of genitals benefit? The patriarchy. The patriarchy. It, it benefits like men, right? Like yep. uh, the fact that like we have bir- women take birth control, but men can impregnate way more women than women can get pregnant. Like yep. even on basic like math biological level, like it makes no sense. Yep. And there's something in a marriage, right, that requires this submission of a woman. It also could require the submission of a man, but it, definitely requires the submission of a of a woman's autonomy yeah like he even like very literally in a very literal legal sense yeah in a legal sense and even in this text like Eamon's submission when he takes the woods into himself so it never gets her like he becomes a literal god yeah his sacrifice exactly and her sacrifice just makes her a wife and partner yeah exactly exactly yeah. Womance or a no-mance, Womance. I can't wait to read the second book. <laughs> I got, like, jazzed for it from the beginning. I was like, I think there's going to be lots of, like, I'm excited to go to the fucking Shadowlands. Like, come on. Me too. And, like, I love that it's going to be a weird-ass creepy Snow White because she's in a glass coffin. I, like, this book has such vibes. Like, yeah. I had so much fun. It's great. And I, and I think this writer... I'm really excited to read her second book just because I think she's going to get, like, sharper, faster, better, stronger. And I think, like, this is a romance. Like, and it's also, like, very firmly a romance. Yes. It's very firmly a Beauty and the Beast retelling, which not only do I prefer to a Red Riding Hood retelling, I prefer it to a Cinderella <laughs> retelling. I prefer it to a Sleeping Beauty retelling. Mm-hmm. Beauty and the Beast might be the, a Little Mermaid retelling. Beauty and the Beast is definitely the least problematic <laughs> yes. of the fairy tales. Um, like, <laughs> even less problematic than, like, Rapunzel. Um, you shouldn't cut your hair for anybody. You also shouldn't keep your hair long for anybody. Yeah. That's important to say. I'm glad I said that. I am too. That was great. Yeah. Uh, Be weary of your blood fetish and don't just get your hair cut to impress somebody else. (laughs) Those are really good lessons, Morgan. Especially as we enter into our totality of autumn femininity. Oh, I have to tell you this Joss Whedon story. Oh my God. So James Marsters, Masters, he portrayed James Marsters Spike, Spike obviously like a big part of our burgeoning womanhood indeed he was on a podcast not ours <laughs> he was like <laughs> although James Marsters if you're listening you are welcome hit us up uh, but I but he was talking he was like um Joss Whedon hadn't anticipated 
Spike becoming a really beloved fan character. And he got a lot of pressure in the writer's room from the studio execs to like explore that more, right? Mm -hmm. And he became deeply resentful. And I guess at one point he like grabbed James Marcer by his collar and like put him up against a wall and was like, I don't care what anybody thinks of you. I will fucking like he physically threatened him and then like also yeah. threatened his career. Yeah. And James Marsters was like, well, I think he was really just talking to the character of Spike. And I'm like, okay, fine. Yeah, probably. No. no. But I was also I was reflecting on this and how often like when I was studying fan fiction, how often like male lead writers, head writers for television shows would be like baffled by who became the fan favorite. And they would think that they had created this like perfect man. And indeed, Joss Whedon believed he had created a perfect man in Angel. Uh, Oh. (laughs) Xander is argued to be the Joss Whedon stand-in. And Angel's supposed to be perfect, but like unattainable, which makes Xander the corollary. Well, so Xander, I'm glad you brought that up. Mm -hmm. So I think what happens is these men grow up and they see women pursuing men who they understand to be angels, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And then they grow up and they write a TV show and they discover that like women aren't actually interested in angels. They're interested in spikes. So what makes a man yep. interesting to women? Well, it's the fact that he has like, he is interesting. Yep. And so the fact that you weren't desirable to women means you are in fact, it's not that you're like nerdy or un- physically unattractive. It's just that you're fucking boring. Yep. <laughs> I think that's what Joss Whedon was confronting that day is the fact that he's actually fucking boring and he actually and that demonstrates how little like that confrontation the fact that he could not have anticipated I'm sorry like the villain in a leather jacket being sexually desirable to women shows how little he trucked with a woman's perspective right like a leather deciter Bleach blonde hair in 1999, a British accent, yeah. and eyeliner for fuck's sake. And he was like, like people are going to hate him. <laughs> who also loved Drusilla. Like, the thing that makes Spike so redeemable in the first two seasons is how much he's, like, fucking wrapped around a psycho's finger. And, like, if he's loyal and good in these ways, like, maybe he could be redeemed. Also, he has much better yeah. taste in clothes and music than Angel or Xander. Yeah. Also, his witty comebacks. Like, he's funny. Yeah. And I think that's, like, so, yeah. It, it's, yeah. like, someone can create that character and not recognize their potency. Yes. And, like, their potency has to be, like, explained to them. Is, uh, anyway, that's Whedon feminism, y'all. That's Whedon feminism. <laughs> it doesn't actually care what women think. Or feel. Right. And it demands that Buffy has to subjugate and subliminate herself in every season, no matter yeah. what. She dies in season one. She has to kill the love of her life after having sex with him one time. Yeah. She's always doing something for a boyfriend. To save the world. Yeah. That's Whedon feminism. And I have a real problem with that. And like, Now I have a problem with it because I've been forced to confront it. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm like, you son of a gun. <laughs> You son of a gun, you got me. But I think, like, this book does 
both recognizes that problem, plays into it, and tries to like work itself out of that trap. And it is both successful and unsuccessful. It's a romance for both of us. It's got it's got shades, it's got tickles of weed and feminism, TM, 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 TM. And but like it's I think it's still worth it. And I think like more than worth it. I think it's a it's a, it was a delightful read. And thank you for bringing it into my world. I'm so happy you enjoyed it. With that, loosen your stays. But never your principles. Woli guacamole, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonsack. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womance and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womancepodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time. <laughs>